Our guest this week is Alisha Nakvi of Lex Council in New Delhi. We're really happy to have you with us, Alishan. Uh, if you could take a couple minutes to tell us about yourself and your firm and your practice, we would really appreciate that. Uh, well, thanks, Lindsay, for this session. Thank you very much. Uh, I have been a lawyer practicing for the last 25 years. Seems like an age since I started practicing. Over this period of time, I have practiced in the area of corporate law, started as a corporate lawyer, uh, went on to become a litigator. So I do both. My individual practice includes both litigation and corporate. Uh, I set up the firm Lex Council with uh, two other partners, three other partners. Uh, at that time in 2004, after having worked in different firms for about five to six years. Uh, and we have completed a number of years, as you see, we'll be completing about 20 years of this firm next year. Uh, we have, over this period of time, worked for numerous Fortune 500 companies. In fact, a lot of Fortune 100 companies also brought in many businesses to, to India, uh, worked in some of the widely reported cases uh, in the Indian courts, uh, had very good ratings uh, in a lot of legal directories. Uh, accumulated a number of uh, hardworking and diligent workers with us, uh, lawyers with us, uh, and very good affiliations. We have about five offices. So I can't complain about the practice and I can't complain about the uh, way this law firm has panned out for us, uh, along with the association with ILM. That's great. Uh, you, It's interesting because your firm started the same year that I started my career in the legal industry. So we're yeah. right about the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So let's, uh, let's get into our questions. What would you say is the biggest challenge for you at the moment? And how are you working to overcome that? So let me see, I gave a thought about it. Um, and there are two things one is internal and one is external those are the challenges that i face and to have a candid talk over the podcast the internal challenges of course there are uh client expectations you know there are also you have uh, i am of a different generation we have lawyers of different generation priorities are different working styles are different we started in the time when we had to go to the library and look for a case law so finding the law was very difficult at that time Today, finding the law is very easy, but so is the easy for your adversaries. The opposite side also has access to the same law. So knowledge is no more the factor which tilts the scale in your favor. It is actually the analysis which is the differentiator. So while everybody has access to the same law, you have to have better analytical, analytical abilities to be successful in the world. 
So one thing that we see, especially is because each law firm operates in a different way. You have lateral hires. Of course, you have homegrown talent also. People who join you, who interned with you, who joined. And we have people who interned with us, joined us after becoming a lawyer, and today they are partners with us. And they are also heading some of the other offices that we have. At the same time, the reality of this practice is that you also have to have lateral hires. Sometimes the culture of reporting to the client, managing client expectations is very different in different firms. So it takes time. So as the practice grows, it becomes very difficult for somebody who has set up the firm and who's managing the practice to put everybody and everyone in the same format of client responsiveness, managing client expectation. And that is one of the internal challenges. It's a constant challenge. And as I speak with uh, my colleagues who are partners in different firms, managing practice, having practicing partners with them who are looking after different clients, but they are managing the overall practice, like being the litigation head or corporate head. That is the issue that they also are facing. And this is a challenge that different partners have different working style, but otherwise you are part of the same firm. So bringing that parity, bring that semblance, bring the, bringing that equity, bring that same way of approaching clients and client problems, bringing the firm culture, also keeping everybody happy is one of the internal challenge. And it's a constantly moving uh, goalpost. Now, in terms of external challenge, what in India, typically I will say that uh, the challenge that I'm seeing in the last few years is the differentiation that is coming in the boardroom versus courtroom lawyers. And let me explain that a little bit. As a courtroom lawyer, I am engaged by a client in a case post facto. Means that the reason for which that person is going to the court either to assert a right or to defend himself, whether against the government or against any private party, that issue has already happened. My engagement is after that. I have no say in the happening or not happening of that event. My role is very much limited on a power of attorney, which is a vakalatanama in India, to represent that client to the best of my abilities. But when you are a boardroom lawyer and you are sitting with the management in the boardroom so many times, you also see transactions and you also see issues which are coming up. So many times you also have uh, your own policies. Uh, so many times there are business compulsions of the client. So at that time, you have to take a call and tell the client that this is legally permissible, this is not, not legally permissible. And sometimes you it may so happen that you know different clients have different risk appetite. So at some point of time, if a client has a risk appetite higher than you, what do you do? You sail in the boat or you disengage. So the differentiation of boardroom versus courtroom lawyer is a very important differentiation and this is a challenge. Now challenge is because this is a matter of perception. For me, the risk perception of a particular transaction as a boardroom lawyer may be different as compared to some of my partners, some of my associates. And most of the meetings, if a three-year or four-year associate is going, the firm is participating. You know, So now you understand. So that is the second challenge that we have to do. And this is an unforeseen situation because you can't predict that what will be discussed at a meeting. You can't talk about these probabilities. So then you have to come, you have to review, you have to take a call. You know, those management, it is not essentially legal practice, but management of your practice in an ethical and legal way, which is an external challenge that all of us face today. You know, it's interesting because I actually think 
those two challenges, especially the, the boardroom lawyer challenge ties into your internal challenges because you're talking about this, this need for expertise and the way that the, the practice of law has changed and how, and how lawyers learn and how it used to be, you know, this, this need for having to go to law books and, and now, you know, knowledge is really at your fingertips. And so the way that lawyers are learning has really changed. And so, as you say, it, it is really about the analysis of the, of the, the law and how lawyers pick that up. And so, as you say, you know, you might have this three, four year associate that you've got going into a boardroom meeting and you don't know what's going to be discussed. And so you have to really have confidence in that lawyer and the way they analyze the situation. Um, and so it's it's a question of, you know, the comp the level of confidence that you have in those lawyers, how they're learning. Um, and so it, it's sort of a juxtaposition between those two things. You know, how how do you um, really have confidence in how lawyers are learning today and the analysis of the situation and their appetite for risk as it relates to the client's appetite for risk. So I think sometimes those, those challenges really overlap quite interestingly. Correct. And Lindsay, what is also happening in the Indian landscape is that there is a legal responsibility and accountability, which is being fixed across the world. Also, it was there. It is coming in India. So chartered accountants and company secretaries have separate obligations for ensuring the legality of the transactions of the clients that they see. Very soon, we will also have it. Now, there was a general principle of law which applied more to courtroom lawyers that a lawyer cannot be forced to testify against the client. Now, that applies typically to courtroom lawyers because a client comes to you, he says, this was my transaction. Was. Was is the important word. This was my transaction and this is, has happened. Now, how do you defend myself? A lawyer usually won't say it was illegal. I will not defend you because a lawyer's job is not to decide for the client. That is the job of the judge. That's why their name has, uh, has the uh, prefix or suffix of justice. I'm only an advocate. <laughs> you know, So justice has to come from there. My job and my professional obligation to represent the client, even if he's a murderer to the best of my abilities. Right. I sit in judgment. And if this principle was adopted across the world, if lawyers became judges, a lot of people will not find any counsel. Right. So the basic tenet of my profession is that I have to represent my client knowing the, knowing the facts to the best of my abilities. Now, with that came the protection for the lawyers that you cannot be forced to testify against your clients. Right. That is true for courtroom lawyers. But across the world, the scenario is changing. Now, this is not true for the boardroom lawyers. I have seen in different jurisdictions where the boardroom lawyers get called by the uh, government authorities to testify. So that is why this is very much important for your own practice also that everybody in the firm understands that that protection that you have is available for the court matters. It is not available for boardroom matters. And that is where you need to draw a line and you need to be very stringent about it. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think that that goes back to your point about the firm needing to be involved with the the boardroom lawyers, because, as you say, then then that needs to have the full protection of the firm and the full advocacy of the firm, because you can't just send in a young lawyer to be there because you don't know what's going to be discussed. And if it is a question of, um, you know, the client having a greater appetite for risk than the firm would have. And then the firm is going to get called in to discuss that risk. 
uh, at a later date, then um, that's really concerning. And at the same time, so you have to be constantly in touch with your, and this is not the challenge that I'm facing. I, I speak uh, for and on behalf of most of the friends that I have who are my legal colleagues, who was in a partnership position or leadership uh, head of the practice position. So this is the general feeling in India. So I'm talking about from the Indian landscape. Right. This is a challenge not, not within my firm alone, but this is a general challenge that India is facing when we talk about judicial landscape. It's an external challenge which we have to face. Right, right. Wow, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> well, on that note, uh, can you talk sort of more generally then about the current state of the market and what that means for you and your clients? Well, India is a happy place to be in. We have uh, started the form. Uh, I mean, pretty much around the world, it is understood now that India is fairly recession-proof. Uh, we are an autonomous place where demand and supply is automatically met. We have lots and lots of work from domestic. When I started practice, uh, in fact, the best of the clients uh, were from abroad because you could uh, build them well. Uh, there were different rates of billing. But today, if you see a lot of, there is a lot of significant inflow, which is coming from outside of uh, India, also into India, because India is the place to be. We have a lot of startups which have become unicorns in terms of funding and funding. And I have, I frequently hear it from my friends who are in the industry, who source funding, who are themselves investors uh, or who had the funds, venture capitalist or hedge funds. They say funding is really easy in India because India holds a promise. Mm. So India is a very good story, story. India is a very good place to be. In fact, India is the new light of opportunity. And a lot of things are going on for my country, which is including the language skill, including the stringent and more stringent uh, framework of law that we are having, which is giving comfort to a lot of foreign investors. We have a good regime of protection of intellectual property. So all those things and plus the understanding of law, plus the court system. So I'm very happy to be in India that way. Uh, another thing that in India is happening right now is, and which makes the job of a lawyer like us who deal in litigation and in corporate law a little more difficult because India is also undergoing a significant change in the laws. So we had the laws, most of the laws were coming from the time that we were under the rule orders. Our penal code, for example, our, our criminal laws, except for the criminal procedure code, uh, the Indian penal code was drafted in 18th century, late 18th century. So those laws are now being rewritten. Uh, there are insolvency law, uh, which has been rewritten some time back, which has which has come into being. Company law was rewritten. So what happens with that? Under a common law country, we follow a precedent system. Our judicial precedents are binding on us. So there is a law and there's the interpretation of the court of that particular law. That is called judicial precedent. When the court interprets a particular law, it is binding within the jurisdiction of that court. So India is a huge country. We have a lot of high courts. So the challenge as a lawyer also is to keep yourself aware of all the judgments. And also when you do litigation strategy, because my firm practices across India, but in some part of the country, there could be one judicial precedent coming from one high court, which may be binding, which may be slightly different in a different court, which is a different high court, unless the Supreme Court decides whose judgments are binding across India. So while laws are changing, 
Older presidents don't work with the new laws to some extent because new law may have new president and when you have a problem, there may be no president. Then you have different high courts. It's a very large judicial system in India. So that is one thing which is quite challenging, quite interesting. Thankfully, with the online libraries and all judicial, the access to judgments, as I said earlier, has become easier. Nevertheless, it's a constant task for the lawyers. I can imagine. Yeah. And it's with things ever changing, it, it's, it must be, uh, you know, you never know what you're going to get when you go to court as a litigator. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's a constant knowledge enhancement process. And uh, sometimes the other opposite party or a client or a senior advocate, we have a system of senior advocates, uh, where are the advocates with a special knowledge of law and a special contribution are designated by the court itself to be a senior advocate. They wear a different type of gown. Uh, and their dress is slightly different, black and white, but slightly different. So they come across and they also tell you some judicial precedent, maybe of 20 years back where the same legal principle can be applied. And then you go back and you check it and then you apply to it. You're... So judicial precedent system makes the Indian legal practice and common law legal practice very interesting. It's not only the law, it's the law, how it is read by the courts. At least it means things are never dull. Never done. Yeah, we can't have a dull. We are so many people in India, we don't have a dull day. Never. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You are so many people in India. <laughs> so what's the biggest area that's related either to your practice area or the, the legal industry in general that you're curious about? It's a one thing that has intrigued me in the recent time is the role that artificial intelligence will play. And we have two lines of thinking. We have the likes of uh, visionaries like Elon Musk, famously saying that AI is going to make a lot of job and almost all the jobs redundant recently. At the same time, we also have viewpoints where they say that uh, the strategy and analysis with the accumulation of knowledge of law is something which is specific of a particular lawyer. In the, in the given situation, two lawyers may think differently. So to what extent would AI help us? To what extent will AI replace us? To what extent will AI replace the lawyers at different level? I mean, would AI replace me for my clients or would AI only replace the lawyers in the bracket of zero to three years in their practice? That means research and drafting, but analysis. Now, if you see everybody in every jurisdiction, every lawyer goes through the same qualification. They read the same law. Still, some lawyers are successful, some aren't. And when we go to lawyers and we go to doctors, we always uh, give uh, preference to experience. Why? Because study of law is one thing, but experience of that law and how it will pan out in the court, how the judges will be sensitive about it, how the society will perceive it, how your action will be accepted at the board level, at the shareholder level, is something which does, does not come from the pure study of law. Now, whether AI will be able to replace at any point of time, this judgment is another area which I often think about. Now, let me take a step further. We have a precedent system. I feed in all the precedents we already have online, all the precedents. I feed in into the AI system. Can I say that the course can be eliminated? You just feed in your facts and the AI writes the judgment for you. 
So I was reading somewhere that AI works at three levels and we have to decide at one point of time. And this is what makes me curious when it comes to legal area as to at what level should we or would we permit AI. And before that, we also assume that we have an ability to permit because AI may automatically just take over without asking for our permission because there are dime a dozen companies selling their AI products to law firms every day. So, so there is no single body which is today controlling as till what extent AI shall be permitted in legal industry. But when it comes to permission, AI can work in three levels. One is chat GPT type where it assimilates all the information with some intelligence and follow-up questions and gives it to you. That is the first level. Second is where AI can solve small problems, for example, traffic violations. Those kind of orders need not be written by the judges because now there is a documentary evidence, there is a photograph of somebody jumping a traffic light and there is nothing to be done in the trial, there is a fixed penalty, you pay it. Then there come the complex disputes like shareholder disputes, like murder trials, where the life and liberty of a person or a financial significant financial issues may be at stake, whether AI can go at that domain also. And in both the second and third domain, whether the human intervention shall be required. So it may happen that in traffic violation cases, AI writes the judgment or AI passes the order, but on a random sampling basis, the judge checks them. Random basis like chartered accountants do audit. But when it is a higher dispute or a life and liberty matter, the AI, AI can be used to write a judgment, but at the same time, all the judgments and every judgment must necessarily be approved by, a, by two or three judges. So their time of writing a judgment and assimilating the precedent is reduced, but still checking remains. So I don't know where will it stop, where will it go, but ultimately it's not on that the debate of AI is not about eliminating the job of zero to three years. AI, artificial intelligence will grow more intelligent. It will go up from three years to senior associates, to councils, to partners, to judges. And whether it is okay, that is what I'm curious about, Lindsay. It, it is a really interesting question because I think it starts to, it, you're right, because it, you, the areas that it get it as you say it gets more complex because as you're discussing um you know the complexity of it i'm thinking about um murder trials in particular because i i have a, um a, a, sec a secondary interest in true crime and so you know you can talk about the trial um and in sort of inputting all of the evidence into into ai and then letting it decide but what you're talking about when you talk about evidence, a lot of that evidence is fallible because the evidence itself is gathered by people and often it's not accurate um, because, I mean, in the U.S., one in nine um, capital murder cases is overturned because the evidence itself is fallible, not even so much the judgment. Um, but And, and those, those statistics are terrible. Because when you think about putting someone to death, I mean, for as far as I, I don't believe in, just to be transparent, I don't believe in, in capital murder for those reasons. Um, and so if you think about what you would put into an AI, if you're dealing with people putting it into a computer, the computer itself isn't gathering the evidence, 
So it would right there, you're already dealing with fallibility. And so the judgment itself would be flawed because you're dealing with flawed humans putting in evidence that is is gathered by people who might have flawed motives and, and all of those things. So I think that's really an interesting case. Um, as you say, things like maybe traffic tickets where you have something that's a little more clear cut because you have computers that are gathering the evidence and then computers that are dealing with the evidence is a little different. But as you get to more complex issues, you know, same thing with boardroom discussions where, um, you know, how do you know that the AI is getting all of the relevant information? You don't. And then the the judgment that they're deciding on, they may not have all of the information to make the correct judgment. So, and also, Lindsay, the trial, as you said, trial, there is, it's very interesting, uh, and I'm happy you said it, because it's not, it's not about the facts and the judgment. There is a lot which goes in the court in between. There is a cross-examination. Cross-examination yes. is of a witness by a lawyer, both sides. And cross-examination plays a very important part in ultimate decision-making by the judge. So part of the process, which means that part of the process will be AI, part of the process won't be, and part of the process will, will again be AI. That's not possible. Now, when I discuss it with some of the colleagues, lawyers, they say, no, that's, that's never going to happen. I said, it's very good to assume that that's never, never going to happen. When I started my law study, and before that I did graduation, decades back, I'm an old man, uh, there was no mobile phone. I used to write a letter to my mother uh, because I came to a different town and it used to reach her in seven days, six to seven days. Then we had phone phones available in India and it wasn't in every uh, home. So we used to book a call and we used to wait. At that time, if somebody would have told me that you will have a device on which you will just type a letter or a, and it will be delivered like a telegram or an instant message, I would have not believed it. So today, if somebody tells me that this is never going to happen, I think they are just ignoring the truth. If technology can process from a handwritten letter to instant messaging across the world and I and you talking to you, talking to each other in different time zones on a real time basis. When I talk to you, I'm actually talking to future, uh, talking to the past. You are talking to the future because I'm ahead to you in ahead to you in time. You know. That's right. That's right. See, we are we are talking at the same time but in different. So so this is the marvel of technology. This is the reality. So today, saying that AI will not go up to that level is, I think, ignoring what is what has to happen if we have to think of a problem we have to think now rather than having a problem and then trying to correct it as i said there is no body today governing the role of ai into the legal uh, industry and there are a lot of companies who are centered around infusing ai into legal practice a lot of law firms for profitability reasons are also adopting it to some extent where will you stop and who will stop it because i have the sole decision over the profitability and revenue abilities and the discharge of work of my client. I don't need to take anybody's permission if I want to take a software for contract management, which has a little bit of AI. So these are the questions which, so you asked what am I curious about? My curiosity these days is centered around this. I ask myself questions. I give myself answers. Some of the answers don't answer the question. Some of the questions are never answered. I'm just going in these circles. <laughs> 
And now you've given me a lot to think about, which is always a good thing, I think. But yes, uh, yeah, these are, it's important th to think about these things, because as you said, you know, things are going to change and, and where do we stop? So um, AI does lack nuance. So it's important to begin to think about these things and where we're going with it before we get to the point where we can't stop it. Yes. 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 Okay. So let's switch gears a little bit now that we're afraid of our robot overlords. Um, tell us something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. Uh, a lot, actually. I read somewhere a phrase on the funny side. <laughs> they say, my, I may be an open book, but a few pages are missing. I like that. <laughs> So, so no, not really. That I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm fairly transparent. But something that people will not know that uh, I had this passion of going into armed forces all the time. And during my law or graduation before that, in India, this recruitment process takes, it used to take two, three years because it was an elite exam. So I have served in Indian armed forces. Uh, which is under Ministry of Home Affairs, which is paramilitary force for uh, a small time as a commissioned officer. Wow. Yeah. I didn't and know after, that. It was, a, <laughs> it was a very short stint. I uh, resigned and came back uh, after six to seven months after enrollment because of there were some uh, constraints for which I had to come back. And then rejoined the legal practice in the same firm from where I had left. Now, before going, I had asked my... Uh, head of the firm at that time that should I go or not go? It was the first year of my legal career. So that person said that you are just starting to be a lawyer and there you will be a commissioned officer appointed by the president of India in the Indian Armed Forces. It's extremely prestigious. If I was at your place, I would have gone. But the additional comfort that I can give to you that you can come back any day you want. I think that made my decision so easy. And I think today if I would have gone I would have perhaps lived in regret at some extent that what if I would have lived that life. Now, I know I went there because of some reasons at my uh, family. I could not pursue it any further. So I had to come back. Uh, but there is a great satisfaction. But this part of my life, people don't know. Uh, other than that, um, I love spending time. I, I love monuments. Uh, I love seeing ancient uh, historic sites and monuments. And we started Delhi is a city. I am based in Delhi. Delhi is a city which is full of monuments. Even if I see a monument every week, I can't complete all the monuments in my lifetime. There are so many of them spread across India, across Delhi. So when my daughter is free, the Sundays or Saturdays she is free, we usually go in the morning, we visit one monument, we identify a monument, read about the history, go there, walk around, and then we have lunch together and come back. That is the sweetest time that I have during the week. Unfortunately, with my daughter growing up, she doesn't, she's not allowed to have that time every week because she has a project, assignments, but whenever I do that, I just, I just love it. And during winters, because winters in our part of the world are more pleasant than the summers. So during winters, of course, we try and do it more frequently. I love that. That's so great. What a cool thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, what would you say is the most important lesson that you've learned over your career? Well, I practiced enough to several years to learn not only one, but several lessons. So 
One is that uh, a client, a client can always leave you, but a friend can never leave you. So what I have thought over a period of time and what we have started doing is a form also. And it's automatically because if you watch out for the client, the clients become your friends. And some of our longest lasting clients are who weren't our friends before they became clients. They came on an arm's length basis. And over a period of time, when we deliver them legal services in both litigation and corporate area, they slowly started becoming friends. And they are continuing with us. So for the clients also, you know, lawyer, our profession is a profession of comfort and trust. It's not only a profession of legal acumen. It's also understanding the need of the client. It's also delivering, but at the same time, there is also personal touch. So my first lesson is, which I tell, tell everyone also uh, in my firm and others have told me also that a client may leave you, a friend cannot leave you. Second thing that I've learned is I have the right, I have the right to decide the fee for my professional services. Now in India, what has happened is that there is, we are a, we are a big country, a lot of lawyers, uh, a lot of law firms are also mushrooming now, and they have that has always been the case. But with now global aspirations and all, of course, uh, today's generation uh, more enterprising, more financially secured from home. So a lot of law firms are coming up, and sometimes we do face this situation where the fee comparisons happen. The clients also get three fee quotes. I mean that's fairly standard across the world that you get two or three fee codes. So again, to understand that I am the sole deciding factor of my, what, what my fee would be, you know? And a client may remain with us or come to us at that fee or may not come to us that fee, but we have to stick to whatever fee is. Mm -hmm. Now, on the funny side, I've also learned that the clients who pay you the least give you the maximum amount of sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I was just joking, <laughs> but that's somewhere that's true. Uh, from the Indian landscape, Lindsay, I've also understood because I started this firm and I have had friends who went to some of the bigger law firms, uh, went to the competition law practice group or went to the intellectual law practice group, went to the uh, stock markets group and into listing. Now I could start a firm after six to seven years of practice, five to six years of practice because I practice in all the areas of law. Now, when a client becomes your friend and that client has business across India, he will have requirement in tax, he may have in employment law, he may have in litigation, on different funds, recovery to insolvency, anything, bank loans, shareholder disputes. So if you are only specialized in a particular area, you may be called a specialist, but to, in India to be able to start your own practice, a journalist, law firm setup, a journalist with a very good and grounded understanding of law and landscape in India and practicalities of the Indian landscape is better as compared to only a specialist. Now, with these specialists, when they have aspiration of setting up their own firm, they end up setting up a law firm which is specifically in competition law. Now, their scope, their fishing net is not cast very wide. Mm -hmm. They can only catch some of the uh, competition law clients because competition law clients will also have issues and will also have preferences of not going to a freshly startup law firm. They would want to go with established name. It becomes much more difficult. So that has been, I often tell uh, lawyers because the profession of law gives you this unique advantage 
of working in-house, working with law firms, as also being able to set up your own practice. And which is a very important ingredient of practice of law. You can be independent. So I tell mostly the lawyers who are willing to listen to me, not all of them also want to get lessons from seniors, but those who are willing to listen to me, I say never say no to work. If you get an opportunity to go to the court, go there. Your experience never goes to waste. Just don't have this idea that I am in this practice group, so I'll do only this work. You are limiting your potential. You are doing no harm to the firm. The firm nevertheless will pay for your work and get paid. But for you to grow in practice and be proud of the work that you have done after 20 years of practice, you need to take every opportunity of work in, working in different areas of law as you can get. Mm -hmm. That is last one of the few lessons that I have learned in my life. Those are good lessons. Those are really good <laughs> lessons. So to wrap up, I always love to ask this question, and that is outside of practicing law, what is one thing that you're really enjoying right now? What I'm really enjoying right now? Yes. Well, I'm enjoying the, the being in India. I'm really enjoying being in India. And, you know, because uh, my work requires me to travel around the world, but uh, seeing the firm grow, seeing the practice stabilize, seeing the practice, seeing the, now we have some name in India. So seeing the clients approach you on their own without your pitching for work, somebody calling you from some reference, you know, that gives a sense of satisfaction that you have really worked. Sometimes the news comes that you have won a particular award or some of my partners have worked a particular award because of independent market research. That's a joy. When you submit a nomination, of course you win. That's also a pride. But the pure joy is when you haven't applied for and you have won, a, won an award because of word of mouth, the clients who are uh, uh, coming from good entities, I mean, invested by companies from US, Japan, Korea, and they say, that uh, we have been recommended your name and uh, we want to come and talk to you and we want to work with you. Uh, that gives a pleasure and a deep sense of satisfaction. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this has really been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much to all of our listeners as well. We'll be back next week with another guest. And in the meantime, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Real law firms, real intelligence.